0: everyone, thanks for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, a radio program of the Coast Range Association. My name is Sam, and I'll be one of your hosts today. Today we are talking about the state of forest defense in the South, and the intersections between defending Southern forests, combating climate change, and standing up for frontline communities. To discuss this topic with us, we're so grateful to have on the show Rita Frost, Campaigns Director with the Dogwood Alliance, an organization that has made a name for itself fighting to protect forests across 14 states in the Southern part of our country. A native Southerner, Rita loves the places and ecosystems across our region, as well as the people that are not afraid to put up a good fight for the protection of Southern forests. Rita came to the Dogwood Alliance after Green Corps taught her grassroots campaigning while being able to practice those skills real time in Durham, North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, and her hometown of Austin, Texas. In her work, Rita believes that a key component of environmental justice is getting people to the policy table to speak for themselves. She's an advocate for participatory social change and movement building. Rita holds a BA in political science from the College of Wooster and runs ultra marathons in her free time in the forests and mountains. Welcome to the show, Rita. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you on. Well, let's get started by just hearing a little bit from you about how you got into this work. Why did you end up joining the Dogwood Alliance to work on protecting southern forests? What inspired you? So as you laid out
1: in my intro, I was raised in Texas, um, and I've always identified as being a really proud Southerner. Um, and, you know, the South is home to 40% of the forest in the United States. So much of my childhood was literally spent in the treetops. Also, I, um, as I lay out in my intro, you know, I was raised in the South's culture of resiliency. My parents are both Catholics, and my mom is a biologist, so the messages taught to me really merged ecology, and liberation theology. The last thing that I'll really share is that by the time I was born, Texas was already 20 years deep in an environmental justice struggle led by Dr. Bullard out of Houston. Um, I remember going to protests. Um, growing up in the Capitol, you have a lot of access to that. And I remember going to these protests as a child because environmentally harmful infrastructure, such as industrial waste waste sites, were systematically being placed in places where minority populations lived. And this came to the fore of my own family's understanding and recognition um, because we were involved in the Catholic Church. Um, the overextraction that the Texas communities face, it's always been met with fierce resistance. And I was raised in that atmosphere and then really found myself developing my own relationship to nature as well as resistance against corporations. Once I started um, traveling out West in Texas, as I was headed to our national park in West Texas, the one that we have, um, and the entire way out there, the nine hour drive from Austin to a little bit outside of El Paso, all you see are oil rigs and industrial cattle farms. Um, And then you stumble upon this great place of wilderness and protected land. And there's a huge disconnect to me as a high schooler about why we were protecting certain areas of our state and then literally using other parts of our state as dumping grounds. And, yeah, that really was my thoroughfare into the work of environmental justice and also working on forests.
2: That's great. Um, I'm interested in hearing, you know, at the Dogwood Alliance, um, what are some of the major issue, issues uh, you are c- confronting uh, for forest in the southeast? And maybe we could have a conversation kind of like seeing the similarities and differences that we're facing mm. here in, the, in Oregon in the Pacific Northwest.
1: Yeah, well, the southeast is really unique in that we have our own unique needs for sustainable development because of systemic underinvestment um we call it underinvestment overextraction and poor infrastructure and the south really lies at the nexus of that and so forest issues just lie in this whole system of overextraction that we're seeing throughout the resource uh, throughout the region in relation to lots of different resources in terms of our forests they they are logged at a rate that is four times that of south american rainforest And this is a byproduct of being the world's largest producer and consumer of lumber, pulp for paper products, and now wood pellet biomass, which is sold to Europe as quote unquote, green energy. Um, Furthermore, there's really this concerted effort um, on behalf of the logging industry, as well as our policymakers to really distract the public from the fact that carbon is emitted when a forest is logged. We see this hidden time and time again, and we instead, we're seeing our policymakers and corporations promote logging as a climate solution. Uh, and this is all at a time when we're reckoning with violence against BIPOC communities and climate change. And so it's really apparent to us as an organization that we need a paradigm shift um, and forests have a role to play here. We, we are pushing for an overall reduction in consumption, um, a reduction in biomass energy, energy pollution offsets, and controversial logging. And we instead are hoping that we move towards a bold transformation in the way that we value forests.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for that overview, Rita. It's amazing how many of the things you just described just ring extremely true for the work that we're doing here on uh, the west side of the, uh, the country as well, especially in the realm of what you just mentioned, these sort of false solutions that are being offered by um, you know, corporate Timber and um, the you know logging industry as potentially, you know, solutions to climate change when we know that they're not. And you mentioned, you know, um, logging being um, advanced under the banner of a climate solution when um, we absolutely know that it's, you know, it's not. And that's something that we're dealing with here on the West Coast as well, this sort of um, introduction of false solutions. So I'm wondering, Mm. can you dig into that a little bit more? Can you share, you know, why is, uh, why is logging not a climate solution? And could you also touch on um, an issue that we're starting to see more and more pop up here on the west Coast? but I know you're really, really t- uh dealing with a lot, which is biomass, another you know false solution being presented as a climate solution. Mm-hmm. So first, when it comes to false solutions, I love that you asked this because
1: this really goes back into the system thinking that Dogwood Alliance is always trying to do and her broader movement in general is trying to do. but we really have to look into who is promoting what and when, and a lot of times the false solutions are are coming from the minds and the boardrooms of corporations, and it's not actually coming from the communities that are facing the first and worst impacts of um, impacts from climate change as well as environmental pollution. And when it comes to logging, you know, this is something that is decades old. And I know that y'all in the Pacific Northwest are really intimately familiar with this because of y'all's own timber wars. But it's hard to battle against the world's cutest mascot and being Smokey the Bear, you know, and that mascot can extend to a lot of the other corporations that we're facing in the South and that that gets the way that that gets distilled down into public messaging is that we are against landowners or we're potentially against laborers. Um, But the solutions that the logging industry really promotes now in terms of climate change is that we need more logging and that that is a way to store carbon. Because if we have more products in, in the market, they're saying that carbon is stored in that product. And it is true that there is some carbon that is stored in a piece of board feet, right? However, if you're really comparing that to the alternative, of storing that carbon in the tree which is uh, a living <laughs> a living part of a grander ecosystem scientists are showing us that the alternative um, leaving forest standing growing older growing bigger is a much better tool in the fight against climate change and the best part about that for us in our movement is that people actually do understand that if you can combat what the industry is saying distill the argument down kind of Kind of make sure that it's really um, coming to the forefront of what the industry is actually trying to promote here and then provide the alternative. Most people, even kindergartners, will understand that there is more carbon being stored in the tree than being stored when it gets turned into a product. And then um, to, to follow up, I know you were also asking about biomass. Um, so, just for those listeners who may not have heard about biomass, um, the way that I The way that I really try to distill the issue of biomass down is that it is one of the biggest greenwashes that we are currently seeing in the energy market. So, we're all familiar probably with the fact that the world is seeking alternatives to fossil fuels. Um, We have this really big issue in climate change that's affecting us right now, and we need to lessen our carbon emissions in the atmosphere while also simultaneously holding more carbon on the landscape. So, as countries are seeking alternatives to fossil fuels, And they're moving towards renewable energy sources like solar and wind and smart resources. Um, We really need those to be deploying cheaply and we need them to be deploying quickly. Um, But one technology that continuously gets grouped with those other renewables that really doesn't belong is biomass. And biomass refers to burning plant matter for energy. Um, It's particularly harmful to the environment when biomass comes from forests, AKA trees, and that is burned for electricity. Um, harvesting wood for energy production is worsening climate change immediately and the harm it causes can persist for many decades or even centuries. The way that we're seeing it kind of unfold in the southeast is that it was driven by European policy created back in 2009 um, for their own 2020 climate plans. It's now been baked into their 2030 climate plans and ever since Europe started creating a demand burning trees for electricity, we have seen the biomass energy market explode in the Southeast. Um, We are going from exporting maybe, I think it was like something between zero and 100 tons of wood pellets in 2009, to the point that last year we're exporting millions of tons of wood pellets, which takes millions of tons of trees to turn into those wood pellets. And we're exporting them over to power stations so that they can then burn them turn
2: on their lights and call it green energy dang um yeah it's it's wild i'm i'm curious about some of the the human impacts you know the cultural community uh impacts i here in oregon we did a uh, coast range association did a study about ownership and you know found that in the state Warehouser owns like 7.7 million acres or something like that in uh the state alone. I know, warehouse is one of the largest private landowners in the country, and I'm sure a major landowner in mm. uh, your region. Um, you know, I'm curious. You know, we are experienced working in the southeast in these forest issues. How do you know workers in these communities relate to some of these large institutional, you know, Wall Street um, backed uh, landowners and foresters? You know, you mentioned the. Uh, huge rate of logging uh in the southeast compared to the amazon i see a lot of uh conservation in like the global scale talking about the ending deforestation in uh you know these uh in the in the rainforest these types of things it's super important but we don't talk about the deforestation that's happening here just because you know these companies are required to replant but there's huge climate and mm-hmm. uh, all these other huge issues that come with that i'm more i'm curious you know like your experience on the impacts to these communities and how people are responding to, you know, these large, uh, absentee, uh, in institutional private landowners.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. So historically, you know, we know that there are big players like Georgia Pacific Warehouser, international paper, um, that do have big land holdings in the Southeast. Um, however, when it comes down to it, you know, 90% of the forests in the Southeast are privately owned. And the majority of that is actually small to medium sized land holdings. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic in the Southeast. Hmm. And furthermore, some of the industrial players over time through market space campaigns have been really limited in their size and scope. In in <laughs> honestly, just often like environmental dogged campaigning that has said, If this is your sourcing region and you've already converted it into a pine plantation, what can we do to just keep you in that forest land and not expand and not increase your reach into other natural forests? Hmm. So the biomass industry for us is such a big threat. Because we already have such an, you know we already have such a patchwork quilt of forests across the United States because of these big industrial players and what they have done to the historic landscape in the southern United States. And now, with biomass players coming in, they're increasing the reach of industrial logging because they are extra demand on an already degraded landscape. When it comes down to talking to landowners from Dogwood Alliance's point of view, you know, these like small to mid, Size land holdings, we actually don't um, we don't do that much outreach with landowner communities. Um, and the reason why we don't is because we're really concerned with the immediate impacts of new industrial facilities like wood pellet facilities. and those times they're more often than not affecting people that live in these really small rural communities that are within that small radius around that wood pellet production facility, right? And so when you're talking about that small radius, it ends up being people that don't historically own land. And that is because they've been historically left out of um, the quote unquote American dream of building wealth and building equity. And a lot of times that's because they are BIPOC communities. Um, And so what we're concerned with and what we oftentimes talk to policymakers about and other NGO partners is that there's another constituent here which is people that are affected by the impact of industrial logging, even if they aren't landowners and even if they aren't laborers, like even if you do not have any sort of economic gains in relation to this industry, you can still be enormously impacted by their activities. And we need to do something regulatory wise or with legislation to make sure that the people that are still impacted have some sort of say about how they can operate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much, Rita, for bringing in the environmental justice lens to this conversation, talking about who are the impacted community members by these sorts of activities happening on the land base. Um, And that's something that, again, rings so true with the work Um, And the issues that we're facing out here when um, we're dealing with folks who are impacted by clear cut industrial logging, um, whose, you know, drinking water is getting polluted and they're not necessarily landowners um, and they're not, you know, necessarily workers on the land. Um, These are, you know, folks um, often, you know, in rural communities who um, don't often, you know, have aren't often given a platform to weigh in on these management decisions. So I really appreciate you shining a light on who are the people that are getting most impacted by these really harmful practices. And thanks for holding that green line um, that this is the definition really of the thin green line that you all are holding with the Dogwood Alliance. Um, And it's important work. Um, and so I, I kind of want to shift the conversation to some of these solutions that we started to talk a little bit about. I know that um, the Coast Range Radio, we recently featured a series on a Green New Deal for Pacific Northwest forests, where we explored what a just transition could look like in our bioregion away from these sort of corporate industrial forest management practices and toward, you know, a vision for a future that we think is ecologically sound mm. um, and, and, um, and ethical. Um, And so I want to ask, you know, I know that the Dogwood Alliance was a part of the creation of a Green New Deal for Southern communities, um, and there is just an incredibly beautiful vision laid out in that platform. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what does, you know, what does a just transition look like for Southern communities and Southern forests? And what do you see the similarities um, and some of the unique aspects being in that vision that you all laid out? Yeah, I think
1: what's really cool in both of our Green New Deal plans in the regions in the southeast and then also in the Pacific Northwest is that we are both hearing a lot of cries for a transition. (laughs) We are ready for a paradigm shift in relation to how we're responding to climate change, how we are reacting to our forests. And also how we incorporate and include community members. We're ready for a transition. And the thing is, is that the transition will happen. The policymakers will catch up. They have to. But it's really awesome that there is an outcry from so many, from essentially a very disparate, from two very disparate regions that are both crying out for a transition. So I just want to raise that that first. But um, from our point of view, as we make those steps, to transition from a carbon-based extractive economy to something that looks like a clean, renewable energy and regenerative land-based economy that's rooted in justice and equity, our concern is that the communities that have a legacy of pollution and ecological destruction, they must not be left behind. They must be part of the participatory process, right? Those that live on the fence line and front lines of environmental justice and the climate crisis must be included in Green New Deal policies. And this is even happening in real time, right? So as Biden creates his initiatives around his 30 by 30 plan, his Justice 40 initiative, he needs to make sure that he has people at the decision-making table that are actually on the front lines and the fence lines of environmental justice. And what we're witnessing right now is that we are afraid that people are still being left out of these processes And instead, big environmental nonprofits are instead invited to represent those communities when they can do the representation themselves. They just need to make sure that they're invited to that table, right? So as we move towards even more idealistic Green New Deal types of policies, we believe that we must restore and preserve soil and forests by stopping new industrial polluting expansions. You know, we need to make sure that we put limits on the industrialization of the United States and the over-extraction of our resources. We're also calling for an end of corporate subsidies. (laughs) We're talking about if we're gonna end corporate subsidies and we're actually going to redistribute wealth, you can directly give that to leaders and decision makers in the communities who have visions for what their forests and their forest management plans should look like. Um, We also think that a lot of existing regulations just need to be strengthened and enforced. Um, for instance, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, within the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, there is no mechanism within the permitting decision that regulatory agencies use in relation to the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act to consider cumulative impacts. So they consider industry by industry, plant by plant, but they never look at the holistic picture of how much burden a community is already facing. So we've got to update what they consider environmental justice to really look like, and they need to be considering cumulative impact. We're also calling for a stop to the use of biomass. Luckily, we have not seen that really take off here in the United States. Um, Unfortunately for us, that's really more in relation to natural gas being so affordable and available to so many places instead of us not having an appetite for biomass. So I think as we move towards more renewable energy policies, We must maintain a firm line that biomass is not part of the renewables club. And then furthermore, we're calling for um, land reparations to environmental justice communities. BIPOC communities have been left out of the ability to really hold land and to build equity in holding land in the United States. Um, And we need to reverse that and provide land reparations.
2: That's awesome. I, I really appreciate that last point. That's both indigenous communities here in the Pacific Northwest, tribal lands restoration, uh, those land reparations, I think, is a huge piece. Um, Rita, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to discuss these really interesting and important topics and drawing the connections between uh, Pacific Northwest and Southeast forests and their advocacy and protection. Um, We have about five minutes or so, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, you kind of outlined it already with the Green New Deal, but, you know, what does winning uh, look like to you? Maybe give us a quick vision of the future you see for the forests of the Southeast, and then also Mm. maybe the forest uh, across the country, if if you want to speak to that. And then um, any uh, call to action? How can people learn more? How can people get involved here in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest to, you know, reach out and uh, create a a national um, forest movement? as we move into, you know, a Mm. uh, climate uh, crisis. And uh, yeah, I think it's really important that we all come together.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the best thing in relation to a call to action is, you know, to get involved in your own local community and your own statewide efforts, because really what that does is that informs national policy at the end of the day, because I believe that a lot of the wins that we get at the national and even regional level kind of bubble up from the grassroots. Um, But I also think that if you have the ability and the desire to create synergy across the United States, we have a lot of means and opportunities to do that given the globalized nature that is the United States. Um, The pandemic is limiting our ability to travel and meet and get to know our neighbors across the United States. But I know that we will move past this and we'll again have the ability to get to know other places of our country. And I can't recommend enough Coming and experiencing the beauty of the forests of the southeastern United States because they are purely magical and also you can totally see and you can totally be in the fact that you're in a beautiful forest and you can know hey this this cypress tree that I'm by right now it could be four times as old as it is you know it can grow over a thousand years old and that is a, a majestic thing to witness so that's the first thing that I have to say there and then as far as winning and. Visions for the future, I think what it comes down to at the end of the day for us is a world where standing forests are valued for all the life-supporting benefits they provide us, not just looking at at them as products for harvest. Um, I think that that is the simplest way to give our vision for the future. Um, And we also just want to we also just want to make it known that we think that forest destruction is a major injustice to all of us. I think that we're all facing the impact of industrial logging and forest destruction across our country. And we also think that forest protection could be a justice solution. We think that investing in forest protection could allow for resiliency and adaptation to climate change while also transitioning communities formerly dependent on extractive forest economies to new forest visions in whatever ways they want to define that for themselves.
0: Wow, Rita, thank you so much. I feel really inspired by the work that Dogwood is doing. And as someone who's also from the South, I can attest to what you just said about the beauty of Southern forests. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for the ongoing fighting that um, you're holding up.
2: Yeah, thank you, Rita.
0: Thank y'all, ditto.
2: Awesome, I look forward to uh, continued uh, collaboration and learning from your your important work down in the Southeast. Yeah. All right, everyone, this is the, this is it. This is the end of Coast Strange Radio for today, a radio show and con- podcast that holds conversations with inspiring individuals who are dedicated to creating a better world. Uh, Coast Strange Radio is on all podcasting services. You can check us out online and subscribe. Thanks to our listeners, and we'll talk to you next time.